Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Good day, all. You know, if you've got everything, the house, the car, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the companion animal, and you still don't quite feel like everything's just right, perfect, you have this sort of gnawing sense of dread. Yeah, it could be what's happening today in the world, but it's probably something internal. Ask yourself, are your values in line with your actions? If you consider yourself, for example, an animal lover, but you're still eating them, that's what is called cognitive dissonance. Society is telling you it's okay. You can kill all those animals, those pigs, those cows, those chickens, those turkeys, those goats, those lambs. You can feed them to your dog and you're still an animal lover, but that's not true. You're being lied to by society. And you're paying a price because even though society says, oh, you get a pass on those animals, those animals don't really count. Those animals are like widgets. They're not like widgets. They're just like our dogs and cats. In fact, with pigs, they're intelligent, much more intelligent than dogs and cats. They have the emotional and intellectual development of toddler children, human children. So if you're eating them, you're killing them. And if you're killing them, you can't call yourself an animal lover. And it may be affecting you because in some deep part of your subconscious, you know you're killing them. Every time you order bacon or ham or hot dogs or pork or pork ribs or pulled pork or a hamburger, um, you are participating in the killing of an animal. Now, I want to bring in my incredible guest today, Donnie Moss of TheirTurn.net. Donnie, you are an amazing activist. Tell us what you've been up to to spread the word about how there's another way to live without killing. Well, I do two things, Jane. Uh, the first is I make videos which have hopefully a global reach. Some of them have you know, hundreds of thousands of views uh, about animal, raising awareness about the plight of animals and what people can do to uh, live more in line with their values. Uh, but on a more local level in New York City, I work with activists on grassroots campaigns to help animals in our own backyards. And for the past, I don't know, six years, I've worked on sort of very provocative grassroots campaigns to uh, help animals. I'd love to tell you about a couple of them today. Tell me. So uh, the campaign I'm working on now, uh, along with uh, three other activists, we're organizing a campaign to shut down Kaporos, which is a religious animal sacrifice that takes place once a year before uh, the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's coming up in about a month. And in the streets of Brooklyn, 60,000 baby chickens, six weeks old, will be swung in the air and slaughtered in the streets in this extraordinarily violent ritual uh, during which uh, practitioners say a prayer to transfer their uh, sins to the animal and then kill the animal thinking that the sins will die along with, with the animal. And then that animal invariably gets dumped in the garbage and hauled away by the Department of Transportation. It's such a grisly, needless uh, it's, it's just a tradition. It's not even mandated by Jewish law. As I said, in New York City six, alone, 60,000 uh, animals are sacrificed, and they spend probably three, four days 
in crates with no food and water in the streets before it even takes place. So I'm working with uh, activists to hold the New York City Department of Health accountable for failing to enforce all of the health codes that are violated during this ritual. That is a strategy we're employing to shut this down. As you can imagine, Jane, many health codes are violated when 60,000 animals are slaughtered on public streets, from noxious odors to erecting uh, slaughterhouses within 50 feet of a residence to leaving blood and body parts and animal secretions on public streets. Uh, it's, a, it's a disease outbreak waiting to happen, and, and we're using that strategy to, to shut this massacre down. And by the way, if you ever see me looking down, it's because I'm sharing this. This is being simulcast on Facebook.com slash Jane Velez Mitchell. Please share this video. And if you want to ask Donnie questions, call 866-472-5795, 866-472-5795. You can also ask some comments uh, on Facebook, which we are getting. And, um, you know, Joe... Arusha says, I live in Brooklyn and I know about this awful tradition. Sarah Siegel says, we have to give them the info in a nice way to help them see the truth. Now, one thing I want to point out is that um, many, many rabbis have spoken out against this and said essentially that it's unnecessary. And there's another tradition. Um, There's been a huge, huge list of rabbis who have signed and said, you can use coins instead of live animals. Tell me about that. Right. So the idea is that people are before the Day of Atonement, people are transferring their sins out, out of their bodies and onto something else. And that's the key here. We could do it with something else and not someone else. No one here is is asking practitioners of Kaporos not to do it. We're just asking them not to do it with live animals because they're victims. So you could take a coin, put it in your hand and swing that coin around your head and say the prayer and then donate that coin to charity. And tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Jews or practicing Jews around the world do that. It's only a small subset who engage in this barbaric ritual sacrifice um, but that small subset still represents probably hundreds of thousands of people around the world, many of whom are in our own backyard in Brooklyn. And, you know, to I think it was Sarah's point, uh, one of the people who posted a comment about asking nicely, you know, for years we've been out on the streets of Brooklyn in the days leading up to Yom Kippur while people are, you know, children, adults are swinging these chickens around their heads and depriving them of food and water in these crates and slaughtering them so mercilessly. And we've tried every approach. And it's difficult to argue with God said. Uh, We now understand that God actually didn't say that. It's not in the scriptures. And this is really just a tradition, uh, an event. It sort of almost has taken on a carnival atmosphere. And I think people just kind of enjoy enjoy it. And uh, part of me is afraid to say that because the people who practice this ritual live in such insular communities, some of them are actually excited by the prospect of activists coming and disrupting and, and causing a stir because it's something different for them. And so this year we're thinking about instead of going in and being as disruptive and chaotic as we've been in the past in an effort to get the NYPD to just shut the whole thing down, we're going to take a more love-based approach, you know, from the save movement and, uh, you know, and direct action everywhere, a more love-based approach to see if we can make a difference that way. And, and I know you always say it, we need to get mainstream media coverage, and that is always a challenge here for us. Um, but that could make a difference, too. Let me say a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, the save movement is absolutely extraordinary, 
And basically, it was founded by this woman, Anita Crines, a Toronto PhD, who um, she, she is a student of Tolstoy. And Tolstoy said that when you see suffering, you have a moral obligation not to turn away, but to go closer and see if you can help and at the very least bear witness. And so what she has done is create uh, vigils at slaughterhouses all over the world. We just did on janeunchained.com, which is where we're live streaming right now, on facebook.com slash Mitchell. We just did a pig vigil in Buenos Aires because uh, we now have contributors all around the world. And, you know, it, it was so gut-wrenching. Just before I came on this show, I uh, boosted it so that more and more people can see it because in Buenos Aires, you can really get up close. Here, you know, they, they, they have ways of keeping you. The trucks are designed so you, it's, very, it's harder to see in. But there, they're just packed on trucks and easy to see. And when you make eye contact with those pigs, it's gut-wrenching. So anyway, Anita Crines, who was arrested for giving water to a pig bound for slaughter and became an international sort of cause celebre, um, she um, doesn't do protests. She does what you talk, loving vigils where the peace sign is given, Nobody, you know, never blame the drivers or any of the people who work there. It's strictly a consumer issue. The reason these animals are being tortured and killed is because people are eating animals and their byproducts. End of story. That's it. It could end tomorrow if people just stop buying it. And for those people who say, well, I'm only one person, that's how it's going to change. One person after another waking up and saying, I don't need to eat animals. It's bad for me. It's bad for the planet. It's a leading cause of climate change, habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, because meat is the most inefficient food source, because animals eat so much more than they produce as meat. If we took all the food that we feed to animals and fed it directly to people, we could end world hunger. And these are all the arguments against eating animals and the vigil movement bearing witness to animals going to slaughter. But in this case, in the case of what you're um, trying to end, um, these animals are not consumed, or are they? Great question. Uh, the vast majority are stuffed into black, big black contractor garbage bags and dumped on the streets. And there have been many occasions in which we've seen chickens who are not yet dead being stuffed into these bags and, and, and thrashing around. It's, it's gut-wrenching to see, as you can imagine. Uh, we do have drone footage of one of the 28 slaughterhouses that we know were erected during this uh, ritual each year, uh, processing the chickens for consumption, which is also problematic because these these chickens are being slaughtered in makeshift slaughterhouses on public streets. It's they're filthy, and the idea that people are consuming these chickens isn't isn't one bit good either. So they're they're, they're either and it has to be in violation of USDA laws. Um, but it's a free-for-all. The city turns a blind eye to this ritual sacrifice because the practitioners represent an extraordinarily powerful voting bloc. They deliver so many votes that elected officials will literally move mountains and turn a blind eye to, to egregious law-breaking and, 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 and health code violations to enable them to do this practice. In fact, Jane, the, in spite of 15 city and state laws that are broken during Kaporos, the city provides floodlights, NYPD floodlights, and a, a massive security teams, and also even the, even the traffic cones where the chickens are bled out into the public streets. Our tax dollars are underwriting 
this illegal massacre, and it goes to show the power of this voting block. If anyone else was doing this, it would be shut down in a minute. Sarah um, Siegel says, hashtag coins, not hens. So let me ask you the provocative question, is that in this day when everything is so politicized and there's such divisiveness, there are those who would say what you're doing is um, somehow uh, offensive to the particular religion. Can you address that? Yeah, I'm Jewish, and so are many of the activists who participate in this campaign to shut down this ritual sacrifice. <clears throat> but that doesn't stop the practitioners from calling us anti-Semitic. It's an easy thing to say. You're just a bunch of anti-Semites. It would be much harder. That's easier for them to say than, uh, than it is to argue with the very cogent points that we're making, that leaving chickens, intensively confining them in crates for days at a time where they can't even move their wings and leaving them with no food and water is inherently cruel and and their god would not want this it's really hard to argue with that so they they throw well you're just a bunch of anti-semites uh in our faces and and you know we're accustomed to that year after year we, we know we're not anti-semitic or anti-anything except cruelty uh but i have to say jane over the years i've been going with the alliance to end chickens as caporos and united poultry concerns and other activist groups this year we have the safe movement and jewish veg so our campaign is growing uh, but we've been going for years, and it is interesting. Every so often, we do feel like we break through. So many of the people say, God said that we have to do this, which, which is, of course, false. But um, uh, some people are hearing us and saying, you know what? Yeah, these chickens should be fed and should be given water. And maybe we could do this with, uh, maybe we could do this with coins. I remember one man said to me last year, you know, back in the shtetl in Poland at the turn of the century, you know, a small village where chickens were running around freely and someone picked up the chicken and before the chicken knew it, uh, he or she was dead. That was a, and of course we would never, we would, we don't want to kill anybody, but that was a different time. So even someone from the community was saying the industrialization of, of, of animal agriculture has made this practice no longer humane. There's no way to do it humanely. And so, but it is difficult to break through to this community, and that's why we're going to uh, the authorities. But we have these 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 political constraints. Well, tell me, you did launch a campaign uh, involving the health department, and you are noted. You are known. Uh, you've been instrumental with your team of amazing activists, uh, Mikey D, and a whole gang that I could be here all day reciting. You, you're known for doing provocative, nonviolent, but confrontational demonstrations that have disrupted Michael Kors' fur um, displays and uh, events, and in fact were instrumental in getting Michael Kors, uh, I certainly believe, to say he's no longer going to uh, sell fur. Uh, ditto for other um, companies. You work uh, uh, to do protests at the Canada Goose stores or stores that sell Canada Goose uh, jackets, because those are coyotes that are killed, uh, that are just like our little dogs, like little Rico here, um, mm -hmm. and little Max right there. And um, but, but what did you do with the health department? So for, we always start out politely, sending a letter, following up with a petition, uh, trying to get a meeting. And more often than not, that doesn't work. We decided to target the commissioner of the Department of Health, who has the, we believe has the power and legal obligation uh, to enforce the law. We also believe that she has a moral imperative because Mary Bassett, who is the commissioner, now outgoing commissioner, which is a different story, of the Department of Health, 
she uh, always talks about being a social justice advocate. So how can she, as the head of the Department of Health and as self-proclaimed social justice advocate, turn a blind eye to such a, a moral outrage, especially in light of the fact that it violates all of these health codes and puts the health of New Yorkers, some of New York's poorest residents, who she is purporting to advocate for, at risk for disease. And okay. so we, we have a caller, uh, yeah. Danny Rukin from Portland, Oregon. Danny, what is your question or thought? Hey there. Hi. Hi, Donnie. Hi, Jane. This is an incredible show. Donnie, I'm wondering, um, Donnie, I'm wondering, I, I know you did a workshop at the Animal Liberation Conference in May about, uh, you know, how to, what does escalate mean when you said escalate? And I, the hypocrisy is unbelievable to me just listening to you. And I didn't know that Mary Bassett, the, the health commissioner, is leaving. Do you know who's coming in and what you're dealing with? And so that's one question. The other is, what does escalating look like? And I know with the New York Blood Center, that campaign was successful, the one you led there. So any of, any of that tying any of that in that would um, help us learn more about what's next and how to, how to do this? So um, I'll start by talking about escalating and how we believe the escalation could very well have led to Commissioner Bassett's decision to resign from her post with three years left in her term. I mean, it's not really, it's mm. sort of common for, the, uh, for someone in such a prestigious position, the commissioner of, of the Department of Health of the biggest city in the country to leave with three years left. That's a big deal. And we do believe we played a role in it, although the media didn't address it at all which was disappointing and not surprising at the same time. So escalation. Um, in the case of, of Kaporos, we attempted to you know, uh, meet, and that didn't work. Uh, we were ignored, as can be expected, and then we launched a petition. And when we felt like we weren't getting anywhere, we found out where Commissioner Bassett was making a public um, presentation, actually at the Columbia School of Public Health. And we registered for the event, we showed up, and during her presentation to a couple of hundred people in an auditorium, um, uh, several of us stood up one at a time and disrupted, making statements like, Commissioner Bassett, you're turning a blind eye to an illegal massacre that violates uh, uh, up to seven public health codes. Um, we're asking you to do your job, and so on and so forth. And we probably disrupted that event for 10 minutes before we agreed to leave on the condition that she would have an in-person meeting with us. And that meeting did put, take mm. place a month or so later. And you, I, didn't, you didn't tell me you were able to meet with her. That meeting actually wasn't there because I was in Liberia uh, documenting the chimps who were abandoned by the New York Blood Center, which is a whole other story. But my colleague Nathan Semmel and Dawn Ladd from the Alliance to End Chickens as Kaporos went, participated in that meeting. And I, th I think... Sorry, go ahead. Let me, let me take a quick break. Oh, we're going to take a break on the radio, but we're going to continue on Facebook Live. By the way, we've already gotten 77 shares. Thank you for sharing this video, getting the word out about what we need to do to speak for these voiceless animals who cannot speak for themselves. Let's take a quick break. And on the, on the other side, we're going to find out what that meeting was like when those folks led by Donnie Moss uh, actually had a one-on-one face-to-face -on -one -face with the health commissioner of New York City about why she allows all these many tens of thousands of chickens to be slaughtered on the streets of the Big Apple. Stay right there.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. Listen for In the Limelight with Clarissa Burt, international media celebrity, supermodel, and renowned beauty and lifestyle expert, as well as founder and CEO of Envelop Her, multimedia platform for women, and sought-after inspirational speaker on women's issues. You'll connect with Clarissa's super influencer, celebrity friends, and experts as they speak about health, wealth, beauty, lifestyle, business, the love of giving, and the love of living a model life. Tune in every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. It's time to elevate yourself and your business to the next level. What are the secrets of business success? Discover them on Key Entrepreneurs of Influence with your host, Kieran Sweeney. Find out who the business owners are that stand out in their respective industries and what they can teach you. The program contains valuable advice that can cost thousands through a professional consultant. Key Entrepreneurs of Influence can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email in to News at gmail.com. Now back to the show. And we are here live with Donnie Moss of TheirTurn.net. And I have my little mascot here, little Rico. He's a Chihuahua rescue from Puerto Rico. And there's Max on the other side. Donnie Moss's rescue Chihuahua. So we're double teaming Chihuahuas today. And Donnie Moss is um, of theirturn.net, which is a great, great journalistic, uh, well, affiliate of ours as well. We work together. We just have different styles trying to get the word out because mainstream media doesn't cover this. You were talking about uh, your attempts uh, to stop the slaughter of, what did you say, 60,000 chickens on the streets of Brooklyn? In New, yeah, in New York City alone. But as you said, Jane, this ritual sacrifice takes place in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in Tel Aviv. I mean, it happens all over the world where you have populations of ultra, ultra Orthodox uh, Jews. Yeah. And so what happened at this meeting where you finally, after disrupting a series of events, got face to face with the health commissioner? So, like I said, my, my colleagues Nathan Semmel and Don Ladd went to the meeting. I was I was in Liberia, but uh, the uh, the health commissioner defended the practice, saying we've seen no disease signals associated with this practice, and that uh, they have the religious right to do this. However, the uh, chief counsel for the Department of Health admitted that 
religious freedoms don't, uh, you don't get a free pass to break the law on the grounds of religious freedoms. So we know that, you know, we, we can't go around killing people because of religious freedom. So why should we be killing animals and breaking all of these health codes for, in, in the name of religious freedom? So that, that's an argument that doesn't carry any weight. And as I said, her other argument was that we've seen no disease signals associated with this practice. And so what, what she wants us to wait for a disease outbreak. We have a toxicology report uh, that was commissioned by people in the communities most affected by this ritual who have to actually see and smell the, the dead bodies on their front doorsteps. And a renowned toxicologist stated unequivocally that people in these neighborhoods face the possibility of exposure to E. coli and salmonella and avian flu and, and coliform bacteria and all these other uh, potential infectious diseases. So my question to the commissioner of the Department of Health, which she never has never responded, is are these health codes being violated? And the Department of Health can't answer that question because the answer is yes. And then what are the, you know, when that answer is in the public domain, then they would have to, they'd have to crack down on it. I'm sure that she wants to enforce the laws. She's being told by her boss, Mayor de Blasio, the man who told us he was going to take horse-drawn carriages off the streets on the first day of his administration. She's been told by him to turn a blind eye because this is an important voting block for him and he needs these voters if he runs for a higher office himself. And Jane, can I just tell you a little sort of an interesting side issue which might help explain why this ritual is allowed to take place. In, in, in these communities, they, all, they, perform, they engage in a ritual which is like a, akin to like oral circumcision, where after a circumcision, a rabbi will literally suck the blood out of the tip of a baby's penis what? as part of, and, and that can transmit herpes and kill babies. And Mayor Bloomberg, the previous mayor, cracked down on the ritual a little bit by requiring practitioners to sign a consent form saying that they could subject their children to diseases, but Mayor de Blasio did away with that. It's a free-for-all. So you can see this community is allowed to get away with so much because of, of the power of their voting bloc. And this issue is no different. And again, when you bring up these controversial issues, people might say there's a prejudice there. And what is your response to that? Look, in the same way that we're anti-cruelty, not anti-Semitic, the people who are fighting uh, to stop the ritual circumcision by mouth are, are just looking after the, the welfare of, of these newborn babies. Uh, so anti-Semitism is just an easy thing to throw at us. But as, as Jews, we can say that we're not anti-Semitic. We're simply trying to stop an atrocity from taking place. So we have so many comments coming in on Facebook. Uh, the hypocrisy of the New York Health Commissioner's Department regarding this is horrific and astounding. Where does money and greed come in? Follow the money. Well, it's, I, think, yeah, I think that these communities do contribute money to um, local candidates, um, and so that could be part of it. But I think the big thing here is votes. If, you, if a rabbi in a, in a particular community can promise to deliver tens of thousands of votes to one candidate, that candidate is going to do whatever, whatever that rabbi says. Well, let and, me jump in here and say yeah, sure. that animal lovers are a huge constituency. We're right now... Uh, in California, you know, going up to Sacramento and getting bills passed. I mean, what about our constituency? You helped get Mayor de Blasio elected. You actually, some people, and I believe this is true, I was in New York at the time, I think you turned it around because there was another candidate running who was uh, way in advance, considered a shoe in 
And you you started a campaign against her because Mayor de Blasio came in and said, the first day of my administration, he said this on camera, he said it many times publicly, the very first day of my administration, I am going to end the carriage horse trade. I'm going yeah, to well, the carriage horse trade. And then he just didn't. And he pretended like, uh, oh, well, I, I can't do it. The city council isn't acting. But he never even really pressured the city council to act. So he betrayed all these people who voted for him on that issue. The carriage horses are still in New York. That happens to be an issue very close to my heart. I grew up in midtown Manhattan. I was listening to the clops, clip clops of these poor horses staring at them uh, all the time. And um, it, it affected the quality of life. In fact, I dare say it's one of the reasons why I'm happier living in California, because I don't have to hear them every morning and see them lined up and, um, you know, weaving through traffic and dodging paramedics and reading in the newspaper every few weeks or few months that one of them is, you know, flipped out and, and run through traffic. And uh, I was heartbroken that Mayor de Blasio did not live up to his promise. So, you know, what, when are these politicians going to realize that most Americans, whether it's New York or L.A., consider themselves animal lovers and that we are a constituency, too. Well, I think in the case of Mayor de Blasio, he really did see us as a powerful voting bloc. And I think he did realize that uh, we were instrumental in getting him elected mayor. He was he was far from the front runner in the 2013 mayoral campaign. The front runner, as you mentioned, was a woman by the name of Christine Quinn, who as city council speaker blocked a vote on every animal protection bill. I mean, she was just awful. And as an animal rights activist, I was terrified that eight years of Christine Quinn would really turn back the clock for animals. And so I got behind de Blasio because he he was more progressive and he did make this pledge to not only help the carriage horses, but to move animal rights, and I'm using his language, into the mainstream in his administration. And boy, will I think twice before being enthusiastic about a political candidate in the future, because he really had so many of us convinced that he was going to not only help the carriage horses, but all of the, all of the animals in New York City who are being subjected to needless abuses. I, and I, Jane, I would just add as an aside to what you said about the plight of the carriage horses, that even during this current heat wave, it is so hot and humid out, the horses are out there pounding the pavement with tourists. And Adita Burncramp, the executive director of NICLAS, the group that's working to help the horses and ultimately get them out of harm's way altogether, documented a horse a few days ago with, with festering wounds. And, uh, and, and the Department of Health in New York City, which is in charge of overseeing humane treatment of these horses, says, you know, we're going to look into it, um, which is code for nothing. And by the way, we invite the carriage horse industry or anybody involved in the uh, ritual on Jane Unchained anytime. We always welcome all sides of the story. We, in fact, we want to have a dialogue. That's that's the whole point. So I want to move on to something else you've been very involved with, the New York Blood Center. And I was in New York during your amazing campaign. Uh, then tell us what the New York Blood Center did and how you got them finally, after this massive, massive campaign that you launched, to uh, do the right thing, if, if in fact you believe they did. And I would just take a step back and say it was, it was a big campaign from a grassroots perspective, but it wasn't so big that other people who see an injustice in their own neighborhood uh, should think, I can't do a big campaign. It, it was a grassroots effort. We didn't have a budget. We just had our bodies and our time and our enthusiasm and our energy 
and desire to help these animals. So anybody who sees an injustice should take on an issue just in, the, in the way that we did in New York City. So uh, the long and short of it is that in 2015, the New York Blood Center, which is the biggest blood bank in the country in an extraordinarily wealthy organization with hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, decided to abandon, and it sounds surreal, abandon 66 chimpanzees on deserted islands in Liberia with no food or water and leave them there to die after promising to provide them with lifelong care. These were chimps who they used in research experiments for up to 30 years. And in Liberia, they opened, the New York Blood Center is based in Manhattan, but they, they leased a, a, an unused lab in the outskirts of the capital, Monrovia, and converted it into a lab to do research on chimpanzees. And they hired, Liberia has a population of wild chimpanzees. They hired local hunters to go into the jungle, shoot mothers, steal their babies, put them in prison, and and conduct these horrific experiments. I mean, they were kept in solitary confinement in barren cages for, for decades. And after all of that, after all the horrors that they were subjected to, they were slow, at least the people who worked there at the time at the New York Blood Center recognized the need to provide the survivors of the experiments with a somewhat humane retirement. And so that's when they moved them onto these islands, which is like a semi-wild environment with a promise to bring them food and water. Um, and then management changed over the years and new management made a decision that they didn't want this on their balance sheet anymore, this expense. So they contacted the locals, Liberians, who were delivering food and water by boat every other day, which is an atrocity in and of itself. And they said, we're cutting our, your funding. And they left them there to die. And okay, so, so the New York Blood Center left 66 chimpanzees that they had used in experiments on islands with no food or water to die. And this is a very wealthy organization. The people on the board, some of them are billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires. Yep. So what did you do, Donnie? So we started politely. First of all, we thought that when the New York Times reported on this, we thought maybe there was a mistake. Why? How could? It, how is it possible that this could happen? It was no mistake. It was. It was a decision they made. And so we started politely with with letters and phone calls, and that uh, escalated to protests out front. And then our very first protest in the lobby, Jane, you were there. You came in with your camera and did an, an awesome video of us staging a disruption in the lobby. And of course, the louder you are and the more disruptive you are, the more they pay attention and the more they feel they need to address it. But it took a lot more than that disruption in their lobby for the New York Blood Center to take action. For two full years, we stayed, launched campaigns targeting the individuals who had the power to make a difference. So four board members and two CEOs of companies, MetLife and IBM, that were the blood center's most strategic corporate partners. And we were relentless and we went to their homes and we went to their offices and we disrupted presentations and humiliated people in front of their neighbors. And after two long, stressful years where we experienced police repression and angry neighborhood neighbors and, um, and, and um, burnout, the New York blood center uh, gave in and they, they gave $6 million toward the lifelong care of the chimps. Now, I was there at some of the others. You went to the home of the billionaire on the board, his Park Avenue home, his Southampton home. Uh, I mean, 
and I remember that there were security people that he had hired who were like snapping our photos. Tell us about that. Jane, it's so interesting because on the very first day that we, his name is Howard Milstein. He was the chairman of the board of the New York Blood Center. No longer is this scandal. He was ousted, I heard, after this scandal. But on the first day that we protested in front of his Park Avenue home, uh, a, a man by the name of Oscar wandered up to us and asked if he could join. He said, this looks interesting. I want to help. And I thought, huh, that's peculiar. You don't see that too often. And he was great. He handed out flyers and, and spoke to the neighbors about what was going on. And he emailed me the next day and said, I want to be part of your campaign. And I put him on my mailing list. Whoa. Well, a year and a half later, I realized that he was a mole. And he had been informing the blood center and other... Is that speciesist? Oh, good question. I, I never thought about it. it <laughs> he if was a spy. He was a spy. He was a spy. I never, I never really thought about it. He was a spy. He was hired by Howard Milstein. He worked for a private security yeah, allegedly. firm. Allegedly. Let's say allegedly. And Howard is invited on any time. Go ahead. <laughs> and, um, all, and so we wondered, how is it possible that these four big security guards, who were probably more expensive than if they had just fed the chimps, how <laughs> is it possible that these four security guards know our every move when I'm organizing these protests through private email. And we later found out that this guy, Oscar, I'm not saying his last name, we found his profile on, a, on the page of a private security firm. He was an investigator. This is what he does for a living. But he was so good as an activist that I thought it can't possibly be he who was the mole. I thought maybe my phone was being monitored or by my emails, but sure enough, we found out that we had a mole and that really made it, our campaign even more difficult than it was already was. Um, uh, but yeah, we went to Howard Milstein's home in, in, in New York City and the Hamptons and it was amazing. Normally people come out and say, oh, he's, this person is a fantastic person. You've got it all wrong. Neighbors are usually defensive of the person we're targeting. In this case, they said, you're, you're wasting your time. We all know he's a horrible man. He's not a nice man. And I, that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. Uh, um, so eventually you also hit what um, some of the big companies, as you said, that underwrite and support New York uh, Blood Center. And uh, they actually agreed with you. Tell us about that. I think that in the end, that's going to be the legacy of this campaign. I think it's great that we got the Blood Center to pay $6 million to pay for the lifelong care of these chimps. But the, what the legacy of this campaign is, is that we got three major corporations, MetLife, Citigroup, and IBM, to issue to sever all ties with the New York Blood Center, which was a big deal because the Blood Center made millions of dollars a year off of the blood drives conducted by those companies at their corporate headquarters. And so, and, and, and not only did they sever ties, they issued public statements and at varying degrees condemning the blood center for abandoning the chimpanzees and to get corporations to publicly condemn a charitable partner. That was, I might've been unprecedented. And that for me, that was the real victory here. And, and we put companies on notice, not just those companies, but other companies. If you ignore the pleas of people who are asking them to look after animals who are being, who they could somehow help, they're going to have a price to pay. Yeah, and what's funny is because some of the people were very upset that you were doing your loud demonstrations outside their homes, uh, particularly on the Upper West Side. And what I find fascinating is this, what I would call selective indignation. How dare you? How dare you do this? 
Well, where's the indignation over leaving 66 chimpanzees on islands with no food or water to die? And when you're a billionaire, when, when that is chump change, uh, I, I, I find that same thing happens over and over again when we do protests at, uh, you know, when Jane Unchained reports live on protests at um, uh, places that are doing like pig roasts or uh, other uh, dead animal related festivals or rodeos and people are like, how dare you disrupt this? It's like, well, where's your indignation over the suffering of the animals? It's amazing, Jane. I was just thinking this morning uh, while writing an article about the whole chimp campaign, the people who would come out of these buildings and scream bloody murder at us. And I thought their reaction is so over the top relative to what's happening, which was a demonstration with posters in front of their building. It's as if we ran into their individual apartment and spray painted graffiti on their walls. And it occurred to me, I think that a lot of the people who, who are so angry and lash out at us, I think they're just using us as a punching bag because they have aggression that they need to get out. (laughs) I really think that's what it is because their response is so out of sync with what we're doing. Well, that's true of everything. I mean, if you're, you know, I see it myself. I'm uh, irritated for something else and then I'm on the freeway or I'm on the road and my reaction is over the top because somebody won't move in front of me. I'm not really mad at them. I'm mad at something else in my life. And so that's really fascinating. But we see this over and over again. It's like, guess what, people? You know, we didn't give women the right to vote by sitting around asking oh so very politely. We didn't end the horrors of human slavery by asking oh so very politely. We didn't end the horrors of fascism in Europe during World War II by asking oh so very politely. When there is an injustice occurring, um, the people who are committing that, that injustice know full well what they're doing. They're not um, idiots. They're just making a choice a morally reprehensible choice, and they need to be confronted nonviolently. In our case, we are, we are a group of nonviolence. We are a movement. That's our whole movement is mm-hmm. to normalize nonviolence. Killing animals is violent. You know, I had a friend who was very upset because I actually wrote a song uh, and I talked about blood and guts and, ooh, she was very upset. No, I don't like that at all. It's like, well, what do you think happens when you eat bacon and ham? You think it pops off of trees? You think the stork flies in and delivers your bacon and ham? Don't you think that their throats have to be slit, that they have to be deboned, deveined, their eyeballs popped out, their hoofs cut off, their tails cut off? I mean, what did you think happened? These fairy tales that people tell themselves are, um, you know, are, are exactly that. We've got a caller, and then we'll go to a break. Shannon, Florida, what's your question or thought? Shannon, Florida. Hi, I, I just want to say I'm just so impressed. I follow what both of you are doing, and it's so inspiring. You're bringing attention to situations that the mainstream media is unfortunately refusing to covering uh, to be covering, so they'd otherwise go without notice. And you're really making such a huge difference. You're showing people that changes can be made, that regular people can go and they can do things about things like these chimps, I mean, to those billionaires, six million, you, you got them to take care of them for life, and you made a difference for 66 beings just with that, but all the amazing things you're doing. So can you, can you just say how important it is to you both to be activists and what it means? 
Mm. Thank you, Shannon. Well, every morning I wake up and I say, what can I do to end the suffering of animals and save the planet from an ecological collapse that's going to occur in eight years if we don't get off animal agriculture? And, you know, some of the comments, we have 112 shares on our video right now on Facebook and 79 comments. And most of them are like, way to go, Donnie. Uh, But some people say, well, what about the dogs and cats? Well, first of all, it's not mutually exclusive. You know, uh, when people say, well, why aren't you concerned about, and they'll cite anything from hot button topics like abortion to children. We do care about issues involving people. In fact, it's because we would like to end human world hunger that we want to end animal agriculture because we are 7.6 billion humans. It's not our footprint in and of itself that is destroying the planet. It's what we're eating. We raise and kill between 60 and 70 billion land animals, not including fish. We're talking about chickens, cows, turkeys, pigs, lambs, goats, etc. Every year, those animals, their footprint is huge. And because we have to grow crops to feed those animals, we're essentially giving planet earth a buzz cut if you fly in a plane and you look down as i did on the way to sacramento last week i saw just farmland 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 where forest used to be and so what's happening is we are destroying forests to grow crops to feed cows and it takes 12 to 38 pounds of grain to make one pound of steak or beef okay so if we took all that 38 pounds of grain and fed fed it directly to people we'd end human world hunger, but we'd also have to fewer, we'd have to destroy fewer acres of forest because we're only 7.6 billion humans. It's the 60 to 70 billion land animals, the cows and the pigs and the chickens. That's what's causing all the problems, not only human disease, cancer, heart disease, etc., but also water pollution. Think about all the manure that's 70 billion animals produce. Think about the methane gas they produce. It's the leading cause of climate change. And you ask yourself, well, why am I not hearing this in the media? Look at the advertisers, meat, dairy, pharmaceuticals. I find it hard to watch TV. I do try to watch uh, the news every day for about an hour, usually either driving around in my car, I listen to it, or I, I'm, I'm, now I have a bike that I ride while I'm watching the news. I can't watch the commercials. It's all about, you have this disease, you have this problem, you've got to take this pill. There's a reason they call it the Food and Drug Administration. They feed you the bad food, you get sick, then they make even more money on you feeding you the drugs. As Dr. Selesh Rao, a genius who was instrumental in the development of the internet put it, they are farming humans just as much as they are farming the factory farm animals We are all part of this system of exploitation and oppression. And you are suckers if you buy into it because they're making money off of you. And the final thing I'll say is the people who run these giant corporations are not farmers. They're living in cities. They've never set foot in a farm. They've put all the real farmers, the Willie Nelson type farmers out of business. They're putting them out of business. These are giant warehouses where hundreds of thousands of animals are kept. And it's making the 0.1% even richer, and they don't eat the food. They do not eat the food. Their children do not eat the food. But, Jane, 
we right. can we we do have i just want to acknowledge what shannon said you know and thank you for your kind remarks uh shannon from florida uh what what can we do we, we none of us was born an activist so jane you you and i became activists when we were adults yes. and so you we 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 participated in in other organizers protests and we became organizers ourselves in some cases and so i for for me vegan living a cruelty free lifestyle uh, ad adopting a vegan ethic is 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 the moral baseline. I think maybe direct action everywhere coined that coined that phrase. And um, and and each of us, if we care about the animals, if we care about our own health, if we care about the planet. We need to do more. Um, and and that means participating and getting active. And we all live in communities where atrocities are taking place. Um, and we can we can think globally and act locally, or we can think globally and as you do, Jane, act globally with videos that go viral and correspondence around the world. And we have to, we can't rely on the mainstream media. We need to keep pitching and fighting to get coverage, but we have to um, rely on social media in the meantime to get these messages out. Jane, er sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Earlier you asked, you know, what will, what makes a difference? And I think what makes the biggest difference uh, in, in affecting people is, is the documentation or the videos. And I think that's, that's what made me go vegan and become an animal rights activist 14 years ago. And, and I suspect that's what did it for you too. When I saw the footage of what goes on in these warehouses and these slaughterhouses, I thought to myself, I sit down three times a day to eat, eat. And I never knew that this is where my food came from. What, how is it possible? And then you learn that these warehouses, these factory farms and, and all animal agricultural facilities really it happens away from the public view behind closed doors and windowless sheds and windowless slaughterhouses. They don't want us to know what goes on, which is why it's so critical that we have to expose what's going on. Exactly. We had this uh, video from Buenos Aires of an incredible activist who got right up close because, as I said, here in the United States, well, they have various ways of keeping you from seeing on top of ag gag laws that attempt to criminalize put you in jail. If you sneak a camera into any of these factory farms, that's how scared they are of people seeing it. And so uh, I, I am definitely promoting that video from an incredible activist in Buenos Aires. He stood on a, on a ledge and he got the shots of these pigs. And I got to tell you, if you could look at this and still eat bacon, you need to see a therapist because you're, you're sociopathic, because what these animals are going through is so horrible. And it's getting worse because of the heat waves. Now, imagine, imagine traveling for hundreds of miles, tightly packed in a metal truck with no food or water, only to be killed at the end. That's morally reprehensible. I don't care whether you're a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, old, young, whatever you are, it's absolutely every fiber in your being when you see that image tells you there is something seriously wrong with this if you're a christian for example you might ask what would jesus say you know if you're a buddhist you might ask what would buddha say whatever your background there is something or if you're an atheist or an agnostic you know what do i say um, your body will tell you, as Jiminy Cricket used to say, let your conscience be your guide. And if you look at these images, okay, and I say that because children are often the most compassionate. You know, they see it and they, children do not inherently want to eat, instinctively want to eat animals. If you put a baby in a crib with a rabbit and an apple, the baby will eat the apple and pet the rabbit. 
Okay. And we're not even carnivores. If we were carnivores, when we saw roadkill by the side of the road, you know what we'd do? We'd salivate. We'd pull over the car, jump out and grab that sucker and eat it. We don't do that. Okay. We can't eat chicken until we cook it because it's not palatable to us. So we're actually not carnivores. Our intestinal systems are not designed uh, as carnivores are. Our teeth, even though we say we have canines, no, we really don't. No, and, and look, there's epidemiological research showing that people who live a plant, who adopt a plant-based diet have the longest lives. I mean, and it's also just so obvious. Of course, you're going to be healthier if you eat plants uh, and get your protein from plant-based sources instead of animals. It's just also obvious, but people want to turn a blind eye because they don't want to change their, their habits. But, you know, but people are changing, Jane. We'll look at Anonymous for the Voiceless, which is showing videos in these very provocative cubes uh, around all around the world, hundreds of chapters around the world where probably millions upon millions of pedestrians over the past few years have actually seen the images that you and I have been talking about. And, and they have data to show that they, they are affecting change. So we have to get out there. We have to keep educating because there's a system in place, a broken system that it's designed to ensure that we don't see this stuff. And, you know, uh, the, the people who frustrate me the most are the so-called progressives mm. who are talking about environmentalism and wildlife conservation, and they're still eating meat with abandon, wearing leather purses. I mean, I, I remember meeting a woman from a very high-placed uh, environmental group, I shall not name it, and uh, I could tell she was wearing like a very high-end, kind of probably like a a Kate Spade bag, leather, leather shoes, uh, undoubtedly. In fact, she admitted she was a meat eater. And I'm thinking, you're an environmentalist? I mean, animal agriculture, it, even if you're a climate change denier, you have to admit, it's simple math. If there are 70 billion animals that eat a lot of food that we're killing every year in this inefficient food source called meat, they have to be fed. And we can't just pick little fruits and vegetables in the forest to feed them. We have to mow down a lot of forest to grow crops to feed them. Anybody who's in a bit in an airplane can look down and see most of the, a good percentage of the United States now is just farmland. And everybody thinks, oh, that's great. But think about what it used to be. And that's all contributing to climate change, habitat destruction, wildlife extinction. Do we really want in eight years, we will have virtually no wildlife vertebrates left on this planet. That means no koala bears, no giraffes, no rhinos, no lions, no coyotes, no nothing, because they will have no habitat, no place to roam. Is that the world we want to live for, our, leave for our children? I don't even have children. But people who do have children, I would think you'd like them to be able to see one day or at least know that a, a lion or a tiger exists. We're going to kill them all. We're not that smart as a species. We think we're so smart. But what we are is powerful. And we are using our power to destroy and kill. We have turned this whole planet into planet slaughterhouse. And we better wake up. It is so strange. We think we're the smartest of all the animals, but we're the only species of animal on the planet that's actually destroying our own home. And not only for us, but for everyone else. Jane, when those 
vertebrates are gone, will be gone too. Yeah. Because once there are no rainforests left, there are no forests to convert our CO2 into O2 and emit it back into the atmosphere. That, that land is just going to be emitting carbon dioxide, which is contaminating our oceans. Uh, We're the already ocean seeing it, Donnie. Right. Have you seen the fires in California? That's going to yes. be happening all over the place. I was in Texas recently. It's very hard to walk two blocks. That's how hot it is. And it wasn't even August. I was there, I think, a couple of months ago. It was unbearably hot. You know, uh, people see snow. It's, oh, there's no climate change. See, I see snow. But that's not exactly how it works. It's really uh, climate change is more extreme weather phenomenon. So, you know, if you want to enjoy your home, your backyard swimming pool, your trailer, whatever it is you have, you better wake up to this because it's all going to be unusable. Yeah. I grew up in Miami Beach. It's going to be underwater soon. You see the tides coming up in a way I never saw when I was a kid. It's shocking. You're actually, we're watching it happen and we're not doing anything to stop it. <sighs> well, I think we've, we've said our piece. Donnie Moss, I think you're absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you. We're out of time, but uh, I will say that this has been a great, great conversation. And I thank you for all you do. Everybody check out theirturn.net. Woo! Thank you, Jane. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.